Well, amen. Well, it's good to have you here tonight. And I know you're going to wonder if you're watching online, why am I here and who am I? Uh, my name is Dwayne Mercer, and I'm pastor here at Cross Life Church, senior pastor. And Doug could not uh, make it tonight. Um, he's playing hooky. No, that's not true. Uh, actually, he is, uh, couldn't make it today because uh, he's been exposed to the virus. We don't know whether he has it or not, but he needs to, uh, he has been tested, and the tests have not come back yet. And it's been a while since I've been able to address the congregation here, partially because of the pandemic and partially because, you know, Doug is doing such a great job. I just didn't want to interrupt him, you know, going over there and interrupt his, his ministry. And uh, we've been kind of on the same series of messages uh, during these past uh, months and uh, really the last couple of years since he's been here. I want to look at a, a passage of scripture, however, out of the book of Matthew. I want him to be able to come back to you next week, finish up the book of 1 Peter, as I'm going to be doing at, um, uh, on the Oviedo campus as well. But I want us to take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18. And it's really kind of an unusual passage to cover in a way when you've got a one-shot deal. You're coming, and uh, when I say one-shot, probably won't be uh, necessarily doing this like in a series. And so sometimes when you're in a situation like this, you just sort of pick out, you know, the sugar stick type of message. But I wanted to stay within the theme and I felt led to stay within the theme of what we've been going through this year. And that is our faith. We've been through a lot of trials. We're going through trials right now. We've been through um, a pandemic. We're going through that. An impeachment process in the past social unrest, violence. We're going through that right now, the shutting down of our economy and the shutting down of our country. Things that we're going through that we've never been through before, and that sort of piled up on the personal issues that we are facing every day. The issues with our family, the issues with uh, our own health, perhaps. And you're wondering to yourself, you know, God, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. Is there a time when God doesn't come through? Is there a time when God doesn't rescue? Let me give you an example here in, in uh, Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, you know the story of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, perhaps, and how they would not bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar or his statue. And so Nebuchadnezzar was going to throw them, the king of Babylon was going to throw them in to a fiery furnace. And he says, if you don't worship me, you're going into the furnace. And the three Hebrew children, as they're called in the Bible stories at least, said, hey, look, God is well able to overcome. He is well able to rescue us, but even if he does not, we will not bow down to the statue. In fact, there was a pretty famous song by Mercy Me called Even If, based on that passage. Now, as I look at that, that raises that possibility. God, you can rescue me in the fire, but even if you don't, I will not worship anything besides you. It opens up the door. What if? Even if. What if he does not rescue? And you think to yourself, well, that's sort of a, a weird uh, statement to even make based on the fact that what, just last week I said that the concept of rescuing is really the same concept as salvation, the same concept as saving. When Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our sins, he rescued us from our addictions. He rescued us from our habits. He rescued us from darkness into a marvelous light. He rescued us from uh, being eternally bound to uh, eternal punishment to heaven. So he has rescued us. And so for us to say, maybe he doesn't rescue. 
So what is that? Does he, is there any time in, in life where he doesn't come through, where he doesn't rescue? Well, we're, be going, we're going to be going through a book this uh, fall, and uh, Brother Don just brought it up just a few moments ago, a book I wrote a couple of years ago called Overcoming Spiritual Vertigo, and we've never really gotten through. And, you know, This was made for uh, so we can study it during our small groups, and so we're going to be doing that this fall, Overcoming Spiritual Vertigo, and then a series of messages to kind of go along with it to, to uh, accompany that. And you're thinking to yourself, well, what is, that's a weird title, what's spiritual vertigo? Well, several years ago, while I was pastor here, um, there was a summer, much like this summer, where it was very, very hot. As a matter of fact, I don't know if I've been in Florida when there hasn't been a hot summer. And so uh, back then, however, I was uh, younger and I was willing to play golf anytime I had the chance, say, on the weekends. And my son and I used to play quite a bit together. And so one day, um, my, my wife and my two youngest ones had gone to, uh, to Georgia for a visit. And because of sports, my son had to stay behind, and so we stayed behind. I stayed behind with him as, you know, he's a 15-year-old at the time. And so um, as we were playing golf that day, I decided to drink Diet Coke instead of water. I became very dehydrated, and that night, about 2, 3 in the, mor- in the morning, I woke up and the whole room was just spinning around. And I, I felt like I was going to be sick if I just moved just one little bit. I called out to my son, but he was in another room. He couldn't hear me. And so I reached over, got the phone, finally reached it, called 911. The paramedics came and and picked me up and took me to the hospital. Turns out I was dehydrated and they had to give me an IV for the rest of the evening. Dehydrated. Therefore, I had a vertigo. So I looked at this because my brother-in-law, in fact, who pastored for some 35 years, had to recently retire because he was experiencing constant physical vertigo. He didn't know when it was going to attack him, and he could be in the pulpit and just stumble and just almost fall. He couldn't read the scriptures. He couldn't, the whole room was just spinning. So what is physical vertigo? Physical vertigo is when your mind, your brain, cannot process what your eyes are seeing. And so therefore, spiritual vertigo, as I would like to define it, would be your faith cannot process what you see, hear, or experience. In other words, you say, look, I believe this is the word of God. There's no question about it. But what, what I'm seeing in my world around me does, does not seem to fit what's going on in the promises in the Bible. What I'm experiencing in life and the circumstances in life do not seem to be following along with what is in the scriptures. And so, As we look at this passage, we look at a passage where it looks like God did not rescue. It's in the life of John the Baptist. And as we look at this, I want us to see this in in this light. Jesus is about to be rejected. He's already in chapter 13 being rejected by many people because of unbelief. And we get immediately into the story, chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, and then it ends. That's the amazing thing about it. This whole thing, this whole chapter starts off talking about uh, Herod and John the Baptist and then immediately just stops and we don't know where the story really picks up. And so let's look at verse one. We're gonna look at three things. The struggle of doubt, the struggle of opposition, struggle of purpose as we look at this passage. At that time, it says Herod the Tetrarch, who is really Herod Antipas, 
Now, this is not the same Herod as was back in Matthew chapter 2 when uh, he was trying to find Jesus. Herod the Great was trying to find Jesus, couldn't find him, and so therefore killed all the children, all the male children under two years old in order to kill, make sure he killed the king of the Jews. Because Herod saw himself, he wasn't an official king, but he was called a king. And when he died, he split his kingdom up into three different areas and gave, him, gave them to three different sons. This one was Herod Antipas. And as we look at this, he says he heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in the prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had kept saying, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him as a prophet. Well, Herod Antipas had married, really kind of stolen, Philip's, his brother Philip's wife. And they were living together. They got married. And this was not at all, according to Levitical law. And nobody was calling him out on it except for John the Baptist. And so Herod was torn here. He was torn because on the one hand, it said that he, he liked his preaching. On the other hand, it said in verse 5, he feared the people because they held him as a prophet. And so on the one hand, he liked his preaching. They, he, they feared him as a prophet. He wanted to please the people. On the other hand, he wanted him killed because his wife was so irritated by this guy. I mean, after all, how, no one likes to be called a sinner. In this case, she was really being called a sinner. And so Herod was torn. The, the Bible says here in verse 6, he was perplexed. Or in verse uh, 5, he was perplexed by the whole idea. He feared the people. And so as he was looking at this, as we look at this, we find this man was torn and therefore John the Baptist had been in prison. Now, what was John, what would John the Baptist do? After all, he was in obedience to God, wasn't he? The Bible says that John the Baptist was a forerunner of Christ. He was there to preach repentance to the people so Jesus would show up and they'd be ready for his ministry. And then, as he was preaching the word of repentance, he got arrested. I mean, he was obeying God, but he got arrested. And he eventually, in the story, would lose his head. And so, as we're looking at this, Mark 6.20 says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, or he was puzzled, he had a divided heart, and yet he heard him gladly. This preaching actually pleased him. He loved hearing the voice of John the Baptist and everything he had to say. And it was ringing true in his mind, ringing true in his heart, but he would not give in to Christ. Why? Well, he had a lot to lose. Had a lot to lose. For all, he was the king of the area. He had everybody serving him. He had much to lose if something happened where he would maybe get saved in belief in, in Jesus Christ and then kind of lose everything because of the Roman Empire. He had doubt. Now, his doubt turned into unbelief, but even believers have doubt. And the Bible tells us in Jude 22, it says, and have mercy on those who doubt. 
You see, doubt can turn into unbelief, which is a lack of salvation in our life. But even believers have doubt, and doubt is a part of faith. Remember what the man said to Jesus. He said, Lord, I do believe. Help thou my unbelief. I do believe what you have to say to me, but I'm just doubting that. Now, what causes doubt? Doubt is caused by taking our eyes off God and putting our eyes on the circumstances. Remember what we said. Spiritual vertigo. Faith cannot comprehend. It can't really process what we are experiencing in the circumstances, what we are seeing around us. And the reason why we can't comprehend it is because we've taken our faith object, the object of our faith off God and put it on to the surrounding thing, the surrounding circumstances around us. And so as we look at this in the next passage, in fact, Jesus walks on the water. You know the story maybe of that. Jesus is out there walking on the water and Peter says, Lord, you know, if, if you, if it's really you, have me come out and actually walk with you. And he begins to walk. He's walking on the water. And you know what the passage says? says. He begins to look around. And as he looks around, the Bible says he begins to sink because he took his eyes off God and put them onto the circumstances. So what happens? Well, our circ- we look at our circumstances and doubt. We begin to doubt. Has God really said this? You know, is he going to come really through for me? I mean, after all, we don't know his plan. He may, he may have something else in mind and therefore he's not going to really take care of me. And doubt, therefore, leads to fear. Fear simply leads to more and more doubt. We have fear because what happens? We look at our circumstances. Listen very carefully. We look at our circumstances and we begin to fear because we feel like we don't have the resources that it takes to make something happen, which means that we've been really kind of relying in a lot of ways on ourselves, And so we find here the doubt leads to fear, fear to more, to, to more doubt, and fear is an indicator then, the, the, the circumstances and the conflict that's going for the fear recognizes or reveals the fact of what we're really relying on, what we're trusting in. What is our functional trust in life? I'm not saying what you believe. I think most of us here, if not all of us, that even listening today or watching today would say, hey, I believe the Bible. But do we really put our functional trust in God? I shared this last week in the message um, with the Oviedo campus that when everything's going well in life, our allegiances can really live together. There's no conflict. In other words, you think to yourself, well, I I think I'm I'm worshiping God. I'm really sort of trusting God, but I'm also trusting in my money. I'm trusting in God, but really I, I get the most satisfaction out of my job and career. I'm really trusting in God, but I'm also trusting in my family to give me the self-worth that I need in my life. In other words, those allegiances not only grow together, but we have no idea that we are putting something else ahead of God until the conflict comes. And it's not just the the power of of our faith. It's the object of it. Somebody says, well, my problem is I just don't have enough faith. Well, maybe that's part of the problem. But let me ask you this. If you're about ready to fall off a cliff 
and you were going to grab hold of something. And you, maybe you had something on a rock, your hand on a rock, and it was slipping. But there was a branch right there. And you thought to yourself, if I let go of this and jump toward that branch, that branch may just pull right out of the mountain. And I will not, it will not hold me and I'll fall. And you look at yourself and think to yourself, well, I have, I have only about 10% faith that this branch is going to hold me. But that's enough. And so you grab it and it holds you. Now, what held you? 10% of your faith or did the branch hold you? You see, it's not just a matter of us coming to the cross and saying, well, I believe, I believe, I have faith, and therefore God's going to do something great in my life. No, it's God that's coming through. And so our faith, our object must be in God. So our allegiances are challenged. And there, there they are coming to the forefront. I mean, after all, when everything's going well, you think to yourself, well, I'll go to church on Sunday morning, sure. And, but now sports have come into play. I know I'm, I'm beginning to meddle now. But sports have come into play. Now I've got to decide, am I going to do something in sports, either for myself or my children, or am I going to go to church? See, there, there's a conflict involved here. Conflict involved. When you're, you've had a business for 20 years, and all of a sudden it goes under because of COVID-19. And you think to yourself, life is just meaningless now. I have no meaning in life. I've worked hard all my life for this, leading up to the business and then having the business, and now the business is gone. Listen, the test on where your allegiances lie is really in that statement. If you lose something in life that causes you to have no meaning in life, then you have placed your functional trust in something else besides God. You have. And so life becomes meaningless because the job was giving you meaning. Your business was giving you meaning. Your family was giving you meaning. Your money was giving you meaning. And suddenly now all of your money in the stock market is gone. And now you're, you're depressed. And you said, there's no meaning in life. I have no meaning in life. The meaning was coming through something else besides God. And that conflict causes us to test our allegiances. So there's a struggle with doubt. But you see, it's not just a, a doubt in a sense that we're just playing mind games with ourselves. There's an opposition here. Look within verse uh, 6. It says the struggle with our opposition. In verse 6 it says, But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, his wife, <clears throat> danced before the company and pleased Herod. And so you get the picture here of the daughter of Herodias is dancing. Now, usually only professional dancers would do this, and this is a very, uh, presents itself as a very lewd type of dance. Some of the movies pro project that she was talking her daughter into it, probably so. He was wanting it as well because he was, uh, he was drunk and had other problems as well. And so he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask, and prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here, right here, on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Again, he feared the people. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Horrible story, sad story. But we need to realize that Herodias had given herself to be influenced 
by spiritual warfare and something spiritual that's not so evil that is probably not even within herself. In Daniel chapter 10, we read about something about spiritual warfare. When it says that Michael the archangel actually came to Daniel and he said, three weeks ago, you've been, you started praying this prayer and I came with the answer right then. But the prince of Persia, which was a demonic force, kept me from coming to you. And so not only do we have opposition within ourselves, but we have opposition in the heavens as well. There's spiritual warfare going on. First Peter 5, 8, something that we'll be looking at here next week. Be sober and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There's a battle going on, a battle raging, and it's within our own mind. And that's where things take place. The Bible says that's, that's why uh, Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, bring into captivity every thought to obedience of Christ, casting down those imaginations. Why? Because Satan begins to work in our mind. Now, I know that if maybe you're watching this as a guest and, uh, or maybe even as a member, and you're thinking, well, you know, I'm not really comfortable talking about the satanic stuff and demonic stuff and spiritual warfare. I mean, do you really believe that kind of stuff? Well, it's so much in the Bible, and Jesus spoke so much of it, that if you believe the Bible, you have to believe in spiritual warfare. I have a book in my library by Andrew DeBonco called The Death of Satan, and it's written from a secular point of view. And he's saying how we've done away with Satan. We don't talk about it in the <clears throat> society anymore. We don't talk about it in church anymore. But then he came to a place in his life when he began to, stu he began to study all the things that were going on and the evil in our world. And he said, I cannot simply explain this by the depravity of man. There's something there. There's something evil going on. And so Satan comes along. And he divides our loyalty. He discourages us. He knocks us off our spiritual balance. He puts thoughts in our head. Do you think God's going to answer your prayer? Do you think you're really worthy of that? I mean, I mean, are you really that so spiritual and so holy that God's going to answer that prayer? Or the reason he hasn't answered the prayer, let me tell you why. It's because of your life. He doesn't really love you. Over and over and over again, lies that he's telling us. And that's why, again, his Method of operation is way back in the book of Genesis when he approached Eve and he says, God is trying to cheat you. That's what it's all about. He knows the, day, the same day you eat of the fruit that you're going to be like him and he wants to be the only God. His MO, his method of operation is always God is trying to cheat you and therefore he's not going to come through for you. He just wants you to worship him and he may come through for everybody else, but he's not coming through for you. There's opposition going on that we need to struggle with. But then lastly, uh, today I want us to look at the struggle of purpose. And I just want to read one verse, one of the saddest verses I think in the Bible. It says, and the disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Simple as that. That was it. That was all. I mean, there's nothing else here. We go on and talk about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Then Matthew talks about Jesus walking on the water. Then the traditions and the commandments and, and the faith of the Canaanite woman. Never, what about John the Baptist? He was beheaded 
And they didn't take the head. They just simply just took the body, buried it, and went and told Jesus. Wow, what a terrible way to end a life. A life that was spent for God. A life that was, as far as we know, John the Baptist wasn't married. He didn't have children. So John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, went out as the forerunner. You know, in modern day terms, he was the sidekick, the tonto to the Lone Ranger. And he did all this, and he ended up with his, with his head cut off. Uh, many of you have maybe seen the movie, and I, uh, I don't want to ruin it for you, but if you haven't seen it, where you been? And um, it's the Avengers, you know, the end game. If you haven't seen it, and, uh, you know, you, you probably... Uh, are never going to watch it because you probably got some spiritual reason for not doing that. But it is weird stuff, uh, the Avengers and all that, uh, all the comics. But um, I've watched all the movies, and this is one of the best ones. But Thanos, the big devil, you might say, at the, I mean, the bad guy of all bad guys uh, in the universe, gets his head cut off, and right beforehand, he says, it's over. Basically, he says, it's over. He's accomplished his purpose. He was trying to end the world or knock off one-third of the population of every world in the universe and because of overpopulation that he believed was there. And he says, it's finished. He just sighed. My purpose really was the same. My purpose was done. You see, God had a plan for John. And his plan was for him to come to this earth to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ and to, to be killed as a martyr for the cause of Christ and then go to heaven to be with Jesus forever. You say, well, I don't know about this. I'm, I'm just not sure about that whole thing. Listen, he knows better than any of us. Dennis Covington has said this, mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. God has a plan for our life. He has a purpose going on in our life. And so what, what could be that purpose? It could be to mature you in Christ. Trials are coming in your life to make you more like Jesus Christ, to mature you in the Lord. You know the old story about the butterfly in the cocoon. If you, let the, if you uh, open up the cocoon and help the butterfly, he'll get out and he won't struggle, but he won't fly either. So God's trying to mature us, according to James 1, 2 through 4. He may want to point us to Christ. He may want us to say, it's just like the disciples on the boat. When they were on the boat and they were seeing Jesus walk on the water and Peter began to walk on the water, Jesus was glorified through it all. At the end of the story, they had to say, who is this man that even the winds and the waves and the seas obey him? Or maybe he just hasn't come through yet. Has he come through yet? He wants you to grow in him. And so after that, has he come through yet? What is he trying to do? Is he really trying to accomplish something really not only special in your life, but to have a rippling effect in other people's lives as well? Many of you have heard of the butterfly effect that one little wing wave uh, extra of a butterfly, say over in Africa, is going to have a, an effect on the weather here. And a lot of studies have been done with that. Many of you um, have uh, thrown a pebble in a, in a creek before. You picked up the rock, you threw it into the creek, and it skips. 
But the thing about the skips, after, long after the skips, there's a wave, there's waves that go out, a rippling effect that happens within as you throw that, that rock. And so it has an effect on your life. Um, if you are been here a long time and used to go to this, this campus, then you'll recognize the story I'm about to tell because it is part of my testimony. But I was at uh, a student at Cole Falls College and about ready to graduate. I was in my last year. I was going down the basketball court in a pickup game, and uh, I made a cut around a guy. My ankle folded and uh, just tore up everything in the ankle. It really just, every ligament, everything stretched or, or cut. And so I was... Uh, uh, it swelled up so badly, my, my right uh, leg swelled up so badly, I couldn't even get a cast on it. So for three weeks, I had it straight up in the air. And then for three weeks after that, I had uh, um, um, a, ca uh, a cast on it, sometimes a walking cast. But I'm going through all this. And uh, really, over and over and over again, I was fighting about being upset. You know, why me, God? You know, we always ask that, right? Why me? You know, why, why do I have this? Why do I have this disease? Why do I have to deal with these issues as, as though we'd rather have somebody else go through it? But why me? I've been faithful. In fact, I was interim pastor of a church at that time. And for six weeks, I couldn't even preach there. And the week that I did preach, I had to put my leg in a chair. And by the time I finished the, uh, the sermon, my leg had completely gone to sleep and they had to help me off the stage, off the podium. Bad time. But as I was finishing that up, I was at home. I was about to, ready to go back to school. And uh, the church, Webbs Creek Baptist Church, called me up and said, look, you know, we, we found a pastor. I was interim. Interim means temporary until you find someone. And so we found the, a pastor. That, and, um, but we want to give you a going away gift, a going away party, kind of after church, a little fellowship, and we'd like for you to preach for us one last time. I had a great relationship with them. I was there for about six months. Great people there. And um, he didn't hit me on a good morning. You know, I was feeling sorry for myself. I was having really a good pity party. You know, it felt good to have. It feels good to have that, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Sometimes. And uh, he was going through all this spill, just talking to me. I was silent on the phone, and I just couldn't wait for him to finish. Just finished. Just, I was going to tell him, no, I'm not coming. I'm in no condition to come. I can't do that. And as soon as he finished, I said, I would love to. And I didn't know where that came from. But I just couldn't. I couldn't tell him, I couldn't tell him no. But through that experience, God changed my life in so many ways. Through that ad adverse condition, he taught me what it's like to be on your back. He taught me what it's like to have everybody else waiting on you and you can't even get up because when I got up, all the blood ran to my ankle and it was extremely painful. So I couldn't even do that. My roommate for a couple of weeks um, until I went home and recuperated with a cast, for the first couple of weeks, my, my roommate and my friends had to come in my room and deliver my food. I mean, I was totally dependent on everybody else. God taught me something and matured me through that. But sometimes things, you know, really do have that rippling effect. 
There was a man in Chicago back during uh, the 19th century, and he had a burden for the kids in Chicago. So he started what would be maybe the first Sunday school class for children uh, there in his uh, backyard. And he began to teach those kids, and he had 10 or 12 of them come every week. One of them was Dwight L. Moody. Now, Kimball, the first guy, you may have never heard of. Um, he was a shoe salesman, actually. And he was, just a, he was a lay person in a church, wanted to do something for the community. So he started teaching this study. Dwight L. Moody was part of that study. Dwight L. Moody became one of the greatest evangelists of the 19th century. Turned England upside down for the cause of Christ. And while he was there, a fellow by the name of F.B. Meyer was a pastor there. But he admitted that he wasn't really saved. I mean, after hearing Dwight L. Moody preach, he said, you know, I know I'm a pastor, but I've never received Christ. And so he received Christ. And he influenced another gentleman. And one of those, one of those people that he influenced made his way to America as an evangelist. And as he was preaching, a baseball player, by the name of Billy Sunday, received Christ. And Billy Sunday, one of the great evangelists of the early 20th century, and he would have all kinds of antics on the stage, and, and he, was just, he was an evangelist. He had one message, Jesus saves. During that time, um, he was invited to come to Montreat, North Carolina. And in Montreat, North Carolina, they had a revival for a couple of weeks, and so many people got saved, they begged him to stay another week. And he says, I can't stay. I can't stay. But I do know another evangelist is just really getting started. And uh, led him to the Lord myself, Mordecai Ham. So I invited Mordecai Ham to, to come. But young guy preaching, only one guy got saved that whole week. But that one guy was Billy Graham. Started out with a shoe salesman, ended up with millions of people being saved. What is God doing in your life? You say, well, he, does, he hasn't rescued me. What do I do? What do I do in the meantime? Even if he doesn't come through the way I think he should come through, what should I do? Let me give you three things real quickly, and I'll close. Number one, you look inside. Look inside. As God is dealing in your life, and you're going through the fiery furnace, as it were, where does your allegiances really lie? What is the function, who or what is the functional trust in your life? Chances are, whatever God's trying to show you, it centers around that one thing. Who is Lord of your life? Who is on the throne of your life? What is the functional trust of your life? What can you not live without? Then you look behind you. And that's part of what this book is about, is Really, faith stands in, is in transit. Oz Guinness says it lives between the no longer and the not yet. One of the reasons we can't believe God for the future is because we don't thank him for the past. Look behind you. Look what God really has done in your life. You'll be astonished at how he has blessed you, what he has done in your life. Colossians 1.12 says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share and the inheritance of the saints in the light. Listen, if you woke up this morning with more health than illness, you are more blessed than six million 
who will not survive this week. If you have food in the refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of the world. If you have money in the bank, in your wallet, spare change in a dish someplace, you are among the 8% of the world's wealthiest people. What has God done behind you? How has he saved you? What did he save you from? Oh, you know, I got saved when I was six years old. Don't even remember what, it likes, what it's like to do. Be thankful, not only that you're saved, but you didn't have to go through the mess and the stuff in your life others had to go through before they came to know Christ. So much to be thankful for. When you look at the past, you begin to connect the dots. You say, well, God, you know, if God did this in my past, then he can do this in my future. So what do you do? You test your allegiances as you look within. Then you look behind, and then you look ahead. You look ahead at what God has planned for your life, what he can do with your life. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Sometimes things don't work out like we plan, but it always works out how God plans. And so what is God's purpose in it all? What's the rippling effect? What is happening to your life right now? You don't know. You may be the father or grandfather, grandmother of the next Billy Sunday, the next Billy Graham, the next great missionary because of what's going on in your life right now. You may have somebody died in your life, but it saved them from so much stuff. When I was a student, again, at Coal Falls, we had a flood that hit the campus. 39 people died. And during the funeral, a mass funeral for everyone, reporters dropped their notebooks, dropped their cameras, came forward to give their life to Jesus. You don't know what God's doing. Things don't always work out like we plan. He doesn't rescue us in the way that we think we should be rescued, but we're always rescued the way God wants us to be rescued. So you get back in God's plan, right? You just get into the plan of God. For we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so the first thing, as we look at our allegiances, the first thing we do is look at our salvation experience. Do we know for sure that Jesus Christ lives in our heart? Do you know that for sure? Do you know right now that if you were to die, you know for sure you go to heaven. If not, that's where you begin. That's what may be going on in your life right now to point you to the Savior, to point you to the ultimate rescue to be saved. If you've never received Christ, you're not sure that you're a believer, I want to invite you right now to bow your head, close your eyes wherever you are, and pray this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. Pray with me now. Lord God, Thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for my sins. I open up the door of my heart. I ask you to come in. Please forgive me of everything that I've done. Make me the person that you want me to be. I give you my heart and my soul, my allegiance, even right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer to receive Christ or you want to share with us some sort of prayer request and you're here today, you notice a, a 
card right there, a welcome card inside, right there on your pew. You can pick that up, fill it out, and uh, place it on the offering bins as, we, as you leave today. If you're online or watching from home in some way, there's a place where you can go, crosslifechurch.com slash um, East Welcome. If you go there, you can fill out the card right there online, indicate on that card that you receive Christ in your life, and we will get some literature in your hands that you're going to need to grow in the Lord. And at this point, as we make those decisions in our own life, let's continue and close out this session and this service in worship.